Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Today, Seth Watkins, a farmer from Clorinda, Iowa, joins our podcast as he and Monty discuss what it looks like to think differently about our responsibilities as farmers. This summer, Monty heard Seth's TED Talk about his passion for stewarding his land and also where he said what he really wanted was clean water, healthy soils, and happy cows. You'll quickly hear that Seth wants to share what he's learned on his journey from both his farm and his family's perspective. So let's join in this great conversation. Welcome to this edition of the Ag Emerge podcast. Uh, So glad that we can be joined today by Seth Watkins. Thanks for being here, Seth. Thanks for having me. This looks like a pretty neat deal. Well, we, um, I was really inspired uh, recently. I happened to catch the uh, TEDx talk that you gave in Des Moines. And it, uh, I, I think it puts a great perspective on, on a few things. And I, that's why I wanted to have you on here today. And before we dive into that a little bit, I just like to ask uh, our guests to share a little bit of their story, a little bit of their family and farm history, just to kind of get people up to speed of who you are and, and where you come from. Sure. I raised beef cattle in Southwest Iowa, kind of between the towns of Clarinda and Newmarket. So we're a far Southwest corner. We're in Page and Taylor and a little bit of Adams County because of where we sat. Um, The the land I own was actually homesteaded by my great grandfather in 1848. And uh, I'm the fourth generation to care for that. And then like a lot of farms we've had to expand with rented land and we run some cattle on shares. We have some of our own cattle and, uh, I always loved them. And, and then I guess what I found out I really love is taking care of the land and, and the cattle are the best way for me to do it where I am. Well, very good. So your fourth generation and, um, and your story is a little bit about the fifth generation mm-hmm. and those kind of things. So you have a beef cattle operation, any row crops, uh, any other right. enterprises? I try to have it that the row crop all goes through the cattle. So we've actually converted a lot of cropland to pasture over the years, but I have about, uh, we've had about 60 acres of corn for silage. Um, I have a little bit of land that I rent the pasture and then sublet the crops to one of my friends. So there's about 400 acres of corn and soy on that. And then about 220 acres of, of alfalfa. And there's always about 60 to 80 acres of oats and small grains. Um, going on is kind of the kind of what it, how it works out we've got a small herd of goats that we're messing around with and i'm starting to study katahdin hair sheep to see about other species i guess it, i've i've had to grow to stay competitive and you know like all farmers but my real dream is to make my farm smaller and i'm not quite sure i'm going to do that yet but we're continuing to experiment and i'm not giving up okay now there's a quote your real dream is make your farm smaller now um, this is, this is the opposite of the Earl butts, uh, get big or get out. Uh, what, it is. Uh, what, what's inspiring that and why are you swimming against the current there? Well, I, I think some of all of us feel it sometimes, you know, you look at areas where, you know, I know I could do a little bit better job with something. Maybe if I wasn't so focused on the cows or if I wasn't spending so much time to constantly grow and like when I restore a stream or, or fence off a pond so the cattle can't get into it. I think, well, what could I do with that? And, and now just on a small scale, I've started planting fruit trees and, and nut trees and things like that around there. And then I start thinking, I thought, well, you know, if I just had three or 400 acres to take care of instead of 3,000, uh, how much food could I really raise off these places? I mean, a, a little bit of its vision, but imagine your, your fence rows are all planted with chestnut trees and, and things that you can harvest. And imagine that your ponds are actually irrigation sources for different plants, as well as maybe uh, some fish you can sell. Um, just really, really utilizing our resources in the best way possible instead of just trying to conquer them and do one, one thing with them, so to speak. But that's not simple, Seth. 
it's not simple and it's and 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 I'm going to be the first person to say I still haven't figured out how to make it work because you know honestly uh, we don't have a lot of of resources to learn about it there's some wonderful farmers doing these things and it's neat to see and I love that but I it's pretty hard to go to my university and and learn about these different practices um, but I can sure learn about how to raise corn and raise soy but you know we're pretty good at that already it's it's about that continuous improvement and learning new things and, and, and having failures too. I always stress, you know, sometimes I worry, even when I see our kids in school, you know, we don't let anyone fail anymore. And I think that, uh, you know, constructive failure is a pretty important part of learning. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. That is true. And uh, when we recently had a tour at our farm here, uh, we called the Fear the Same Summit. One of the things I always pointed out on every field that we stopped by was not only what we've learned here from success, but what we've learned from failure. In fact, I'd lead with the failure and try to emphasize that it's okay to fail. It's okay to learn. Now, if you fail and do it again, <laughs> shame yeah. on you, right? But uh, if you pay the tuition, you should get the degree. And uh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, if you're taking the care. same approach, you know, the definition of insanity, that's not a good approach. But, you know, I love how you describe your tour and we try to do ours the same way. I think it builds credibility when you give a tour, when you don't hide things and you right. say, you know, and you don't know where the next great idea is going to come from. So I appreciate that. Well, I, I, I like how you said that um, you're learning and you're, you're doing these things to you, you don't have it figured out. And you're pretty sure that what you're going to do next may or may not have it figured out, but you're not, that doesn't stop you from trying new, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's the key. I think so many people are afraid to fail the one time that it prevents them from trying anything new at all. Mm-hmm. Or if they do have that one failure, then they're, then they're done for a generation until, you know, the kid uh, tries something new. So kudos to you. Well, I want to, we're going to have a link to the, um, your TEDx talk, uh, mm-hmm in, in the podcast, but how did you get invited to, um, TEDx there in, in Des Moines, I believe it was. Well, it kind of started in a roundabout way. You know, we talked about trying new things and not being sure of yourself. When I made some of my changes, I was scared to death to share them with anyone for almost 15 years because I couldn't explain why they worked. And I always, you know, if I can't quantify it, then I feel like it can't be applied. So I was very, very careful on that. And then over time I started to understand why some of these things worked, you know, why moving away from fossil fuel made economic sense, why rebuilding my soil. So I, I was able to talk about that to some groups. I've talked to Iowa State and around the country to different people. And, and in that constructive way of saying, help me continue to build on this. Well, when, uh, when COVID hit, I was invited to an event and it was an outdoor event. And I'm used to using slides when I speak. And I felt like I didn't do a very good job. So I decided that since people were gracious enough to invite me and come speak to their groups, I didn't want to let them down. And I thought I've got to, I've got to learn how to improve my communication skills. And I started by taking a storytelling class and, and storytelling is important, but I'm a data guy. I'm a, I'm, I'm a credibility person. Oh, you mean? And the more I read about Ted is that, you know, this is an organization that will teach you how to give the presentation of your life. And you'd better not make anything up because we're going to double check every bit of data you present us with. Hmm. And I really liked that level of credibility and that platform. So uh, anyway, I mean, you know, all I had to do the last year was check cows and hang out at home. I just as well set some goals. And in Des Moines, you have to apply for it. And uh, the honest story was, was that I, I did all the application process and I didn't get admitted. And I thought, well, that's fine. You know, they wanted it to be for Des Moines people. But I also found out that at least in Des Moines TEDx, it's kind of like Navy SEAL training. You can be thrown out or drop out up to the very day of the event. And some people didn't make the cut. And they called me a month later and said, would you like to 
would you like to participate? And uh, I wound up being accepted and, and then spent the next, um, the next three months probably driving my family crazy because it's a really intense uh, uh, type of presentation. And I'm also a very, very competitive person and I wasn't gonna go up there and do a mediocre job. And uh, from there on, it was great. They had incredible coaches for us. Uh, they had people come in that are professionals in public speaking, people are professionals in public relations, um, people understand drama, all those different areas. And the coaches were very helpful to me. And again, it was, uh, I guess I'm 52 now and I refuse to ever get out of my comfort zone or I refuse to stay in my comfort zone and it kept pushing me. And, uh, you know, all this is, I didn't go to college. I didn't have a lot of formal training, but I, uh, I'd never had to memorize anything in my life. And one thing about Ted, you memorize your, your presentation. And I found out I could do that. So I felt pretty good about it. You know, I just, I found out other things I was capable of. So yeah, that, that really, that's the, that's the synopsis there. Well, that really stretched you and, that, and that's good. And like you said, you're kind of a, a data guy and, and, and to data numbers or appeals to the, um, this is my term, the nerdy side of me. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, people never make a, a change because of data. No, no, they make changes on emotions. That's right. Uh, I, I learned early on when I did an internship in college, um, a sales trainer was, was at, I interned at case corporation and, mm -hmm. and she, she said that, uh, customers buy emotionally, then justify their decisions rationally. So you have to have the data, right? For the justification right. portion. But what does everybody lead with when you're trying to get somebody to make a change? They lead with data, 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 mm -hmm. and it's boring, right? You need to lead with the why, why should you do this? What are the, the storytelling? And you think about, there's some farmers that are just absolutely amazing storytellers, mm -hmm. you know, and, and yep. you, you can think of who they are that, you know, and, and, you know, and uh, older generation are great storytellers, but how do you think, what are some tips for farmers today that are maybe looking or trying to share what they're doing with, with folks in town or uh, relatives, non-farm family? Um, how can they do a better job of telling their story that's more relatable instead of facts and figures and, and those kind of things? What are some, what are some kind of takeaways through your three-month process there? I think, you know, first of all, that that hook, you know, they talk about how do you hook someone? What is a story on your farm? What are things that you do? You know, I'm always surprised at the little things people really care about that sometimes we, you know, we forget that maybe we're all human, even though someone's trying, you know, we're trying to make a living and you're farming thousands of acres, but uh, you look out and one of my favorite examples was uh, one of my neighbors really likes wild birds and he has bird feeders and, and it was neat on his own farm. He had a, he'd, he'd done just a little bit, just a very simple wildlife project, left some corn and, and made a, he'd made a, a waterway a little wider. And, and I said, you know, this is really neat what you've done. I really appreciate it. And he said, well, I'm not going to sell out my hometown for two more rows, you know, and, and it was a neat way of looking at it. But I think also, um, I think part of it is a little bit like uh, our tour, you're, you know, you're talking about our tours, be honest about the things that you're frustrated with and that don't work very well. Um, but at the same time, help your audience understand uh, how heavily involved the government has become in what we do, how challenging it is on, on distribution, on, on exports. And um, take that step back and, and maybe be frank about some of the things you're really trying to do. You know, how do I bring a son or daughter into the operation? That's not easy. How am I, uh, you know, farmers, we're not supposed to talk about when we want to retire, but uh, it's okay. You know, talk about, hey, these are some things I'd like to do as well. And, and be a little bit vulnerable with those genuine concerns of who is going to do this. How am I going to continue? You know, I am starting to worry when I look at this hillside that's thinner and thinner every year. Um, what are some different things I could do? And, and how do you feel about it? Because sometimes the farmer may feel like, you know, the, the public has one expectation, and that's to produce. And in reality, if you have an honest conversation, you might find out that, you know, they appreciate our, our efficiency in our production, but they also appreciate our commitment to trying to find ways to keep our water clean, to be honest about those conversations. You know, just good old fashioned vulnerability and honesty is a pretty good start pretty hard for a farmer to do. Yeah. Yeah. But I, that allows them to have empathy 
right? And and be able mm-hmm. to relate to you. And and then now you're talking instead of just words, you're you're talking heart to heart. Then one thing that I think I guess the, you, you kind of triggered a thought. Something that helped me. This is 20 years ago. I, when I started noticing all the different things on the farms, I'd stopped using so many chemicals and I saw different forbs and insects coming back and birds. And, and I thought, you know, I'm going to buy a camera and I'm going to take one photograph a day of something on the farm and categorize it. And honestly, I started it from that attitude of I'm going to show the world how special I am because I'm a farmer and I'm doing all these great things. And I got into that project about two months and I realized I want to do this because I'm so grateful for the other people that make my life good. The mechanic that keeps my car going, the the teacher that helps my kids, the nurse that takes care of my mom. I'm the luckiest person in the world because I wake up every day and I get to go out and work in nature and I have a lot of control over my life. I don't, you know, I might say the government intervenes a lot in ag, but no one's directly over my shoulder on a daily basis. You know, I have that freedom and that independence and that project focusing through that lens and seeing those things really did change my perspective of um, I'm really blessed that this is my vocation, but I want to make sure that I'm keeping an open mind and learning about the things, the water, our, our environment, our ecology, the really important things, our soil that we have to regenerate and protect. If I want to make sure future generations get to enjoy this the way I do. Hmm. So it really changed my perspective of, I moved from self to, whatever the right word is on that. Sure. And, you know, and being, I think, an awareness and appreciation for, um, you know, the created order and, and your place in it and your place mm-hmm. amongst the community. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, a lot of times we get, I mean, my too much. So <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that's excellent. Well, let's, let's dive in a little bit with your, with your TEDx talk now. Mm-hmm. And um, tell us about your, your son and your daughter and, sure. and some of the, some of the challenges that yeah. they've gone through. Yeah. Um, our, our son Spencer was, uh, was born with a, a very rare syndrome called 49 XY. For some reason, he just kept replicating X chromosomes. And what that does is, uh, it causes cognitive and physical challenges. You know, Spencer's awesome. He, uh, he has very good receptive language, but he doesn't, you know, he's, he's not the best communicator. He struggles with words and the low muscle tone makes it hard for him to do certain things. But, you know, we, we try to overcome a lot of it and, you know, he's, he's awesome to, and he lives with us. He's 20 now and, and going to be 21. And our plan is that, you know, we just bought a portable chicken coop so he can help me you know, sell eggs and things like that. Yeah. And, uh, but it, it also showed me, Honestly, it probably tries, and, and I want to say this the right way because I don't, you know, I don't know the challenges other people have see, or, sorry, see, but through Spencer, I started to understand a little bit about what it must feel like to be in an underserved community and, and the things that, how important it is to simply listen to others and try to come up with long-term solutions instead of saying, I've got all the answers. And uh, anyway, knowing knowing the challenges with Spence and we recognized them. My wife and I chose, this was about the time they'd actually mapped the human genome. My wife and I chose to have genetic testing to make sure it wasn't a heritable trait. And I'm talking like a cow farmer and, you know, everyone said this isn't heritable. This just happens sometimes. And, and I said, you know, just in case, let's make sure. And, and we went through that and everything was fine. And uh, then we found out we were pregnant with our daughter and, and Tatum. I mean, we were just ecstatic to find this out. And then, uh, then our obstetrician gave us a diagnosis of what's called monoamniotic monochorionic twinning, which is pretty rare and something you really don't want to hear. And um, anyway, what that means is that both twins are in the same placenta. Um, there's no division, nothing to protect them. And um, again, it's a, it's a cause, some, something causes cells to divide and cause this kind of, this kind of a, a disruption. And anyway we we lost one twin during the pregnancy and when tatum was born because of she had what's called an emphalocele where you're uh, in her case her colon had actually come through her abdominal wall it collapsed within the two umbilical cords you had it had caused them to collapse and that's one of the last places to to to, to finish um for lack of better words and uh anyway when she had been born 
um, we had to do a C-section and because of the, because of them fallacial and Christy was, was recovering. It was pretty, pretty brutal. And I was meeting with the medical team in the NICU at Tatum and, um, you know, medical people are, uh, have to be very objective and they have to be kind of analytical and, and that's important. And they were going through a file and they're looking and they're saying, you know, this just doesn't make sense. Um, you've had genetic testing, you've had, there's no family history on either side. We don't see anything in your background. These are so rare. These, 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 uh, birth defects are so rare. And, and the nurse just looked at me and she says, you know, where does your family get there? You get your water. And, and honestly, as a farmer that I, I've, you know, you learn to just not say anything sometimes, but truthfully, the question kind of upset me. It's like, you know, why are you picking on farmers again? What are we, why does everyone do this? And, but like anything, you know, I think I gave pause and, and thought about it and read about it and, and, and the birth defects my children deal with can be caused by things I use as a farmer. They can be caused by atrazine. Um, they, uh, we look into, you know, the, the, the verdict's still out on like glyphosate, which is a product I use, but the, the surfactants, the inert ingredients that I don't list, um, those can do some pretty wonky things, at least to reptiles and, and stuff like that. And, and even the nitrogen fertilizer we rely on is a suspected endocrine disruptor is what we're talking about. And through that, I guess I like the expression, be a seeker of the truth, you know, learn how do we do this? How do we manage it? Um, I started looking even closer at how I was farming, you know, what products do I really need? Are there better ways to do this? Are there ways I can do this without these products? I'm still not, again, I'm still not fully organic. You know, I've looked at people saying, if I've got a thistle, I'm probably going to spray it, but I'm not going to spray the whole pasture. Uh, I'm a livestock man. If I have a calf that's got a a temperature and a fever, I'm going to pull it and I'm going to treat it. And I'm thankful that I can do that, but I'm not a fan of uh, putting animals in an environment that requires mass antibiotic treatment on a daily basis. That just doesn't, that lacks common sense. And, and we know that there are issues that will come from that. And I think that goes back to the communication part as farmers is I think we should uh, educate ourselves on the impact of tetracycline antibiotics on the impact of certain products we use and, and be pushing our universities and, and ourselves to figure out what do I have to have, what don't I need, and how do I continue to move on this path and be productive and not use them. But, um, you know, anyway, Tatum and Spencer, Tatum's a, a junior in, in high school. She's brilliant. I don't know where the brain's, you know, she, she's just so bright. She's taking a, a full load of college classes plus her high school classes. She wants to study medicine. Um, she's keeping me on my toes. Um, I'm kind of proud of her because she's figured out that she thinks she can get her LPN degree before she finishes high school. And she's picked a couple of really good liberal arts schools um, as her target that she wants to do her undergrad work at. And I thought, you know, I really like this approach of maybe working as a nurse on the weekend. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but say that liberal arts degree isn't as profitable. She's got the nursing and the things like that to fall back on and keep working through. But I completely believe in her. And I just, I've, uh, I've told her that, you know, you, where you want to go to college, I'm going to support hundred percent. We're going to figure it out. And it's just awesome watching her learn. And she is an incredible advocate for herself and for the conditions she deals with still from, you know, from them fallacial and the corrections for it and, uh, is pretty inspirational. So when I see Tatum and Spencer, I'm, uh, it, it makes it worthwhile when I'm, you know, on the road speaking to people about these things, or sometimes wonder if my neighbors are laughing at me because of the next project I'm trying and, you know, the ones that work are the ones that don't, you know, I'm, we're living our lives and, and doing our best to try to figure it out and, and seeing enough success that we really want to get the message out that this is something that can be done and it's worthy of research. It's worthy of investment and, and we know it's possible. Well, it's, it's an amazing um, uh, story that, that you and your family have, have um, uh, been through and, and what, you, what you've experienced and how you've turned that to a positive, really. I mean, looking at, uh, you know, people can get pretty uh, overwhelmed by those kind of circumstances. And I appreciate what you and your wife have, have um, come through that and, and it appears to me are, are looking to help others understand 
what could be causing that and, and seek the truth. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, when you do find the truth, uh, adjust accordingly. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that, uh, you know, one of the things, especially when you're, uh, speaking in Des Moines, um, and it was, you know, in, in very near history, the, um, Des Moines waterworks, mm-hmm. um, issues with nitrates, I believe it was in their water and the extra treatment that it was going to require. Um, this, the Des Moines said, why are we having to pay for this? Um, when our water is, we're receiving in water that has higher, um, uh, TDMLs, I assume is the term for that of nitrates. And, and that's not our fault. It's requiring us extra money. So I think, the, the lawsuit that emerged from that uh, really sh- uh, shined a spotlight on the issue and, and some things. And like you, I'll let you talk about it, but for me, you know, farm bureau and several other ag groups came out uh, against that. And, you know, mm-hmm. just me being a farmer, a state away saying, Oh yeah, this is some, you know, bureaucrat trying to flex his muscles you know it's a it's a it's a bureaucrat with a badge trying to you know cause trouble and you know that i was just believing the the line that you get in the in the ag media and through our supposed representative groups and didn't think much more of it you know i was i was glad i was doing cover crops we're doing half the normal rate of you know nitrogen application i'm not really worried about my particular impact, but you know, here we are, I mean, my syndrome, right? So, um, talk about, I I think your perspective on how he was representing you indirectly, Mm -hmm. I think farmers need to listen closely to this. I'd like you to share that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, when I watched the, the lawsuit, I thought about what the nurse had said to me about my kids. And I thought about how, you know, we know this is, this, you know, it's scientifically proven and, and documented that some of these products really need to be used very carefully and definitely don't need to wind up in our water. And I think what, what threw me a little bit of backstory also is um, the Des Moines Waterworks had been reaching out for a number of years, trying to get some kind of progress on this issue before the lawsuit. And, uh, the other part I thought about on it, honestly, is I worry a little bit about the nature of our farm programs, our farm bill programs, as far as how federal crop insurance works and that they're very production focused. Yet, at least since 1933, you know, the federal government's kind of been a partner of farmers. And I think if, if you're working with someone like that, and I'm taking the taxpayer's money, um, it's very important to me that they're getting value in terms of, you know, very healthy regenerative soil and, and clean water. And when I going back again, so I actually got to be friends with Bill Stowe, who was, who was the director of the waterworks. And the reason behind that was when I really thought it through and studied the issue and understood what he was doing to be, you know, protect people and ensure this clean water supply. I mean, we're going to go, I think we're done going to war over, over oil. We're going to start going to war over water. That's nothing more precious. And, and, and that's scary, but we should be thankful there's people like that that can do it. And the light bulb that went off was the groups that claimed to be supporting me, the ag groups, Farm Bureau, you know, corn growers, some of them. Um, if they really were serious about the future of farming, they should have been the ones leading the way to clean up Des Moines water. Because the reality is of most of us in Iowa drink out of municipalities that can't afford nitrate treatment, or we drink out of wells. And the numbers are staggering on the number of farm families that are really probably not getting the best quality of water because we've been taught that, you know, nitrogen that you put on your farm isn't hurting isn't the problem it's the golf courses or we've heard the old uh you know we've been to the we've been to the meeting where the guy drinks glyphosate but he forgets to put the inert ingredients in um i've seen people eat aldicid as an example saying this stuff's safe and i'm saying you know that's a bad idea let's not do that let's turn around and see if we're really serious about farm families our number one priority is the health of our, those families and the future of their children. And that gets down 
down to changing some practices we use to make sure that, uh, again, the beauty of it, a lot of these practices that are that regenerate our soil, that that umbrella of things that sequester carbon, all those, they also restore wildlife. They also protect water, and they do over time reduce costs. And it's just disappointing that it's taken so long for those groups to come to even to that level. But again, I want to see them stand up and say, you know what, we are really worried about the health of children where you live. Seth, we're really worried because every person on the oil road that runs by your house has had cancer. You know, we're really concerned because Page County, where you live, has the highest per capita rate of cancer in the state of Iowa. And it's all kinds. And you happen to be at the bottom of five watersheds. And it's not about scaring people about what it's in our water. It's about saying, we've got this, you know, we've seen this, we've seen, seen families suffer from it. I have friends who are older that almost just take it for granted, you know, that that's while well, you farm, you're probably going to get cancer by the time you're 70. Um, I don't want that attitude. I want one of saying, we can dig into this and we can solve it. And at the same time, we can empower farmers to make a lot of solutions that our country needs. But like you were saying, when you, when you've, uh, viewed it from Bill's approach. He's mm-hmm. just trying to protect people, yep. you know, and he wasn't trying to out to get the farmer, no. uh, which is how kind of how it was spun, you know, for, yep. for us. And I think there's always two sides to every story. Uh-huh. We have to look at it carefully, but you're right. Um, and that's interesting to think about corn growers. It's all about the bushel, right? But what are we doing for a bushel this year and potentially giving up Yep. for productivity in 50 years because we have to win the corn yield contest by tilling it a, a bunch of times and throwing everything but the kitchen sink at it product-wise uh, to get the 500, 600 bushel headline Ooh. yields. And yet that has nothing, no, um, there's no consequence for the long-term impacts of those. How are we going to feed 9 billion people depleted soil and dirty water? Especially, you know, that's especially when we're depleting that soil now to go into fuel tanks. Yeah. So yeah. I, uh, that, yeah, that, that's a real, real challenge. You know, it, it'd be interesting to know what the percent is actually food that comes off of our, of our land. I mean, it, yes, it goes to beat meat production and those kind of things, but there's, there's a large percentage of land that isn't for non food, uh, ingredients right now. So, um, but no, I, that's, uh, that's fascinating. How do, how do we get there, Seth? What's your vision? How do we, how do we change, uh, the focus from what's right in front of our noses to what's, what's going to be happening for our kids and grandkids. We talk about it. We give it window service. Everybody has beautiful ads about it and such, but who, who really, who really behaves that way? And how, how do we change that? Well, I'll, I'll make the one comment that I've said since I really started getting involved 10 years ago. Um, there will have to be some level of clear, well-defined regulation. If I feel like if I'm taking taxpayer money, it goes back to my comment that they have a right to expect a certain standard from me. If I want to farm without their money, I think that's a different, a little bit of a different issue. But I think as long as we've got that relationship, um, that's the low hanging fruit I see. I think things like where I am in Southern Iowa, we have a lot of what's called highly erodible land. Mm-hmm. Um, I call it, I like to call it pasture, but since it's all been torn up, we give it a new name. And, <laughs> and how uh, much of it's in compliance? I'd say less than 20%. And how much of that is enforced? Zero. Oh, and okay. that goes back again. Yeah. Your point is very good. We have the rules and we don't enforce them. And, and part of that is, you know, the agencies are, thin and then uh you know government being government they're not strategic they draw i've had my farm inspected twice and it's all in pasture you know and and look right across the road at something their rows are going up and down the hill i think there will but i do think there will have to be you know i i don't think it needs to be uh i don't think they need to get carried away but i would use the example in drainage districts if water is leaving this last pipe at a level, at a nitrate level of above X, you have to fix up. How you fix up behind that pipe is is up to you, but here's some good practices that'll help. Um, I think that number two, um, and it does go back to how we use our land, geospatial technology is a great example of technology that tells us really what we should and shouldn't farm. 
And again, on crop insurance, I just, it makes no sense to me to create an incentive to farm land that we should not farm, especially if our argument is we're doing it to feed 9 billion people. If we've got 9 billion people, we should soil bank it. So just like CLUs, instead of uh, mm-hmm. doing a CLU for a um, um, crop insurance, mm-hmm. it's uh, you can insure anything. It's an ABC slope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. E and F, you're out. Right. Something like yeah. that. Something like you know those. I'm talking very simple ports. Right. The next part that I see, honestly, on the farm bill, and and does go to research. Um, you know, Iowa State does some great work. They have a very small but very good horticulture department, a very good organic farming department. But that institution has 16,000 acres, and they're not doing these practices on them. Um, I do see opportunities to bring young people back. Like I mentioned, we're messing around with this little herd of goats. That's a way I can bring another farmer back. Um, starting to look seriously at how we feed people in our, in our schools, in our hospitals, in our nursing homes, in our prisons. Um, there are uh, some underutilized resources there that could be raising food to help supply some of these entities. Uh, and that means though that when the, when the next farm bill is written, there needs to be parts in there to do things that incentivize that. So if you're going to build a food hub, you're going to need a way to process that food. You're going to need a way to freeze it. You're going to need a way to can whatever it is to preserve it. But that will bring in a few more farmers. Um, starting to identify, there's got to be a happy medium in the meat packing business of a, a packing plant that maybe is like 40 cows a day. And on maybe on Friday, they could do pigs and sheep and chickens. Um, but get some of these smaller regional type packing plants in that make it more uh, attractive to raise our, our, our food. I think there's a sound argument on that when we saw the disruption of the food supply during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that should be enough to give pause at least to what we're doing and how can we do a better job of this? Uh, and, and I'm a realist. I understand why vegetables are raised maybe in the Simi Valley. I understand why certain things are raised in certain places. But as we see the challenges these areas are facing with the droughts, with the, dry, you know, the extreme rain, whatnot, mm-hmm. maybe as farmers, instead of being in competition with other states for their ag commodities, we should find out how we could work together and learn together to mitigate some of the risk. So what are California crops that could also be raised in Iowa? And how could we work together to do that successfully? What are, you know, in Iowa used to raise, I think, 157 different crops. Um, we can still raise other things. But again, that does go back to we've got to have research and extension again, focusing on these areas because, you know, I'm kind of ashamed to admit it, but I'm, I struggle to raise a lot of these things. But going back to that, uh, having the resources teach us how to do these things. One of the questions you asked was, what is your greatest fear? And honestly, one of my greatest fears is that we are losing farmers and knowledge so rapidly. Well, I was about and to that at a time that we should be making more farmers and learning how to do new things. And I, and, and the other example I was going to make, you know, I've got probably hundreds, if not thousands of varieties of number two yellow corn to select from my farm. Um, that, that, are, that have really been bred with beneficial traits. I think I had 11 varieties of oats and probably three or four varieties of rye for cover crops. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got to be putting that same effort into other crops so we can be rotating the way we should. No doubt Salinas has us beat on the climate for produce, for example. Mm-hmm. But the other thing they have us beat on there is uh, resources, infrastructure, all the processing capabilities, and the knowledge base. There's a mm-hmm. knowledge base there on how to grow those produce crops that just doesn't exist in other places. We've lost that art, like yep. you said, as we've gone from 157 crops to three to five. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, they, yeah, that is part of it. And, and we need to have that again in order to uh, allow for diversification. And like you said, there, there's significant, well, you know, whiskey's, whiskey's <laughs> drinking and water's for fighting. And that's <laughs> certainly going on right now in California again. Yeah. Uh, in, in a huge way. So, um, yeah, you know, bringing that diversity back, offering opportunities is, is certainly, certainly out there. And, and I think, 
I love your comment too about the, the processors and the scale. The whole, all the centralization has shown the weakness of centralization. Hmm. Where, you know, I always kind of looked at the beauty of the internet is its decentralization. You know, it was mm -hmm. designed to work in the case of a world war right, to be able mm -hmm. to communicate because there was no one central thing. It's a it's a web of interconnectivity. Uh, same thing. If we could do that, you know, the trick comes down to on the processing. How do we find the people to do it? You know, that, that's one of the things, and it's a real tough thing to robotically do. Mm -hmm. It's um, every animal is a little bit different, so to automate those processes is tough. But um, it, it that's one of the rig, one of the problems. And I imagine you, as a farmer, could go to your local processor and say, "Hey, would you go from fifteen a day to forty a day?" And me and five other farmers are going to put the money together to do it, like we did for the ethanol plant boom, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, and make it happen. And he'd say, sure, I can do that. I just can't find people. Right. You know, so, um, yeah, everything's connected, huh? It is. And, and it, it does come back to that, you know, being honest about the problem, being honest with the challenges. And then, and, and I do believe the solutions are there. I think one thing that, you know, it's been tough uh, the last year, our country has become polarized. And, and, and I think something I, at least for me, that, was kind of heartwarming about my TED talk was that I actually had an equal number of friends from kind of both sides of the perspective of, of the, of the spectrum, mm -hmm. um, reaching out after they heard it saying, you know, this, this was meaningful. This is something I could get behind. So, you know, maybe like so many things and so much turmoil in our country, you know, you think about the Garst family and their, uh, that family, when they got Khrushchev to visit their farm in Iowa, uh, was a huge part of ending the Cold War in the long run. You know, they were a back channel for communications, even for the State Department. And, and it showed that, you know, if some farmers get together and put a few of our feelings aside, we can really solve some pretty, pretty big problems. And I, like I said, I talked about in a perfect world, if I could be king, yeah, it has to do with policy. It has to do with... Um, it, it has to do with what we get out of our universities and some of those areas. But at the same time, that's not going to stop me from we're going to host a film at our local museum about agriculture this Friday or this Saturday night. Um, one of my friends who's uh, he's a he, he's a veteran um, has become an incredible gardener. And I'm talking to him about saying, you know, it won't quite be the garden club like our, our moms and our grandmas belong to. But could you help us in our community uh, share this knowledge and keep moving forward with it. And the neat thing is sometimes when we have that common appreciation of raising that plant or cleaning up a stream or understanding that, it seems to be a much needed springboard for our country and, and uh, a way to at least get the ball rolling and, and move beyond some of the other stuff we see out going on. So what are some of the things that you're working on now? And, and you mentioned the uh, goats and, mm -hmm. and your, your son with the, the pastured yep. poultry. What, yep. are, what are other things you're working on now or want to in the future? Because like you said, you, it'd be great if we could be king for the day, but we aren't. So you are king of your own little, yep. little uh, kingdom there. Um, how are you going to, how are you going to shape the future? We are starting to learn how to direct market meat. Um, this is my third time at it. So I was, I'm, I, uh, third time might be a charm. Um, so we are, uh, doing a little more direct marketing, um, definitely getting the goats going, um, probably going to add the sheep. Uh, so we're, I'm in the process of putting the last bit of woven wire around the land I own myself, my own farm. Um, we are every year I have been determined to plant chestnut trees and fruit trees around my ponds. So in about five or six years, we should start to see something um, more tangible on, on that on that project. And uh, I think the other part is also um, working to get more involved in my community and listen more to people on things like honestly on parks, on, on public land, um, going back, like I said, with Spencer, I started to learn a little bit about what it's like to be in an underserved community. I'm, I'm doing my best to reach out to others and learn about the challenges that they face and, and to my best advocate. I think that, you know, in our, in Iowa, we've, 
I look at uh, like Storm Lake where our meatpacking plants are in some of those areas. There's 38 dialects spoken in that school district. And it probably has the most incredible farmer's market I've ever seen in my life because so many of these people that have come here to help kill our cattle and get these jobs done were farmers in the countries they lived in. And uh, they're some of the best farmers I've ever seen. So continuing to be supportive in those ways, um, that's kind of the plan. But also being mindful that uh, at 52, I take care of myself and I feel like I'm in pretty good shape. But I also know that... um, I'm not quite the cowboy I was at like 25. So taking care of myself as well is, is pretty important. Good, good. And where do you, where do you see Spencer and Tatum uh, being a part of the farming operation in the future? I don't know. You know, Tatum again, her for Tatum, if, if that's something she wants to do, that's, that's great. I don't think it is. Um, Spencer and I will, as long as I'm healthy and able, we will go and ride around and, gather eggs and, and do some things like that in the mornings, especially as maybe I start to slow down some, I'm, you know, I'll try to find a way that I can be with him more as he gets older. Um, but I think at the same time, we're also realistic. Um, I have put my entire farm in a, in an ag land easement. So it will always be a pasture farm. It can never be tilled. It can never be, uh, developed for real estate. And I did that because it's number one, it's served my family for, you know, 170 years. And that's important to me. But also, if the time comes that I decide that no one in my family is following me and I sell it, uh, it's going to give an opportunity to someone to buy a farm at a little bit of a discount because the title is encumbered with the easement. But also, um, it's kind of my, a way for me to start thinking about what's next if I don't, you know, if, if no one is following me on, because I, I don't want to be the guy that holds on so long. I can't take care of my cows or ten, can't take care of my cattle. Right. And also I firmly believe, like I've said before, we need more farmers and we need young farmers and I don't want to stand in someone's way of that happening. So as you know, for the next seven or eight, 10 years, I'll definitely be here. Depending on what circumstances play in though, uh, there's going to come a time that I try to transition it to someone and, and let them enjoy all the things I've enjoyed. That's incredible. Talk to us a little bit about that easement, the decision mm-hmm. to do that, how that worked. And, uh, what, was there a third party involved that in, in encouraged that financially or, or, um, yep. from a, uh, con, uh, consulting standpoint there 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 has to be a third party to actually monitor and enforce these so in our case it's the iowa natural heritage foundation is the land trust that is the third party um usda was the other partner on the easement and uh i did receive a tax credit and uh a monetary uh and some money um and it was a very thorough process but it basically was the difference between the value of the land as pasture and the development potential of the land which um i think as you know close to some cities that's a big number now in southwest iowa it wasn't a real big number it was more just a case of me protecting something very special to me but i think moving forward and we talk about finding ways for more farmers to have an opportunity i think easements are really really important and uh, I think it's so important to make sure we have good farmland and and farmland ideally um, protected for its best use, you know, though its most appropriate use. Um, but that's probably one of the most satisfying things I've done in terms of conservation in my lifetime. And I've done a lot of different conservation practices. Hmm. And especially if you're in closer to a population center, an easement is a, an opportunity for that oncoming family to where, you know, uh, acres could be selling for 200 to 250,000 an acre to, to build at Lowe's where if, if you can put it in that easement, it's available for young farmers to start up. Plus they're right in the middle of their market. Yeah. uh, But you know, in your case, like you said, in South Southwest Iowa, you're, you're, you're not, the population isn't a concern Mm -hmm. there, but still, um, farm programs and commodity crop prices uh, definitely affect land values everywhere. So it is an opportunity for someone to get involved in a pastoral type uh, farming enterprise at a reasonable price. So it is very it is, isn't it? forward thinking there. Yeah, it's a it's a tool that I hope more and more farmers use. And, you know, it just 
sounds good. Kind of keeps me from making a bad decision, I guess. <laughs> there you go. And, and really it puts you in a stewardship seat because it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's, you're doing it for, um, trying to think of the right words to say here, Seth, you're, you're doing it for, um, it's not for yourself anymore. It's, right. It's yeah. The, no, it's, it's, it's that next person yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. beyond. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I think I know there's some people that really struggle, but um, I have enough, you know, what's the same enough is as good as a feast. And, um, I mean, farming's kind of taught me to not spend a lot of money. And, and now that I'm at that point in life where I'm a little more comfortable, it's like, well, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll be okay. You know, I'll be fine. And, uh, um, I, I think a lot of us need to think about that. Um, you know, I'm, I hate to tell other people what to do, but I'd sure ask other people to consider that kind of type of thinking. Considering what is enough and, yeah. you know, and, and those kind of things. And I agree with you. There's, there's a point to where there's enough. And then the other, the other point is, is what is your purpose of making an impact? Right. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you make an impact with what you've been given? And, uh, that, that's pretty, I think you've done a great job of that from what I can tell. So anything else that you'd like to share with our, our listeners today and, or encouragement that you'd like to leave them with? I'd just say that, you know, maintain a lot of hope in the American farmer and, and, uh, that we are at a time in life that, we can still figure this out and, and we can give our kids a pretty bright future. Um, we just need to give a little pause and, 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 uh, continue to make our best better, you know, continue to, to understand things. And if there's things that we learn that maybe we don't feel good about, that's okay. But what's important is we figure out ways to, to improve. Well, I really appreciate your time here. I thank you for, for sharing your, your family's story. It's, um, uh, it's definitely a, something that we can learn from. I really appreciate your perspective. It's always good to have a, a perspective that um, gives us an, another way to look at things instead of what the industry or, or uh, society tells us it's got to be more, 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 more. And we need to look at are we really doing the right thing first and, and establishing what is that right thing, how much is enough and and pursuing that and doing what we're supposed to do with that so seth thank you so much thank you very much have a great week you too wow seth's passion for what he's accomplishing on his farm is so evident as he talks about the things that have pivoted his thinking and practices have you thought about the changes you could adopt in your system if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices check out our website at asn.farm and there you can click on links to follow us on facebook twitter instagram and linkedin There's a whole lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.